You are listening to the Indefensive Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for Indefensive Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to Indefensive Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensive Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Before I begin, I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who supports Indefensive Plants on Patreon. Without you guys, I really could not be doing this to the level that I am, and I want you to know that I recently was able to purchase a brand new recording device that should give this podcast much better audio. Those that listen regularly might notice that the last few weeks my voice has come through a little scratchy, a little less clear. It's because my trusted recording device had finally kicked the bucket. It broke. But thanks to your kind and generous donations each and every month, I was able to save up enough money to purchase a new and better recorder. So here is to much better audio recordings into the future. Thank you so much for all of your support. All right, today, super excited for my guest. This was actually a long time in the works, but we're both extremely busy people, so it took a while to get this organized. But joining us is Dr. Chris Martin from Bucknell University. Now, Dr. Martin is an excellent scientist. He studies a group of plants related to tomatoes and eggplants in the genus Solanum in Australia. And not only is he describing new species, but they work on the evolution of reproductive strategies in these plants. What's amazing is this interplay between monoecious strategies, meaning plants that have male and female reproductive organs on the same plant, and dioecious reproductive strategies, meaning plants that have male and female reproductive organs on separate individuals. It is fascinating work, and I'm going to let him do all the talking on that, but he's not only just a scientist, he's an excellent science communicator. Dr. Martin runs the YouTube series Plants Are Cool Too. It's a wonderfully produced, very fun series. You have to go check it out over on YouTube. Just Google Plants Are Cool Too or check him out on Twitter. And because of all of his work in what they call plant evangelism, Dr. Martin was recently awarded the Peter Raven Award for exceptional outreach to non-scientists. So this is going to be a great conversation for everyone that enjoys plants as well as science communication. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Chris Martin. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Chris Martin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's uh, been a long time coming, but you're here now. So how about you tell everyone who you are and what it is you do? Uh, hi, Matt. Uh, yeah, I'm Chris Martin. I am the, uh, they call me the David Burpee Professor of Plant Genetics and Research at Bucknell University uh, in central Pennsylvania. And I'm also the director of the Manning Herbarium here. So collections are really important to me as well. Um, and I've just started my seventh year here at Bucknell after doing six years um, at SUNY Plattsburgh as a professor there also. Oh, nice. I was uh, a SUNY undergrad, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So, cool. Um, you wear many hats in the plant world, but uh, all of it does revolve around plants. Has it always <laughs> been about plants for you, or is this something you kind of came to later in your career, or education? Well, yeah, I, I sort of I went off to college not really knowing exactly what I was going to do and not really knowing that what I had spent a lot of my childhood doing, which was being outside and, and loving being around nature and, and knowing the names of things around me, I never knew that could actually be a thing you did as a living. So <laughs> um, when I discovered that, 
uh, and then finally did declare a major in natural resource management and conservation biology was when I realized that a person could do nature and do that sort of thing, uh, you know, as a, as a vocation. And that was like a mind blowing moment for me. Um, and as I learned more and more in those areas, particularly in, in uh, ecology and evolution and spending a lot of time outside with really inspiring professors, I found that it was really the plants that I began to gravitate to. So first it was the trees and then it became the other green things around. And I think some of it was just, you know, that they, you could count on them always being there and uh, you know, they didn't run away or yeah. bite or, or, you know, so everywhere we went, there was a story that you could immediately learn just by seeing what the plants were around you. And that, that really intrigued me. You know, when I began to learn about different plant communities and habitats and how important the plants were to, being the groundwork for all of those types of, of spaces. Awesome. And that's, I think, probably shared by a lot of people. I mean, I still talk to established adults that go, wait, you can do that for a job? And that's <laughs> always good for people to realize is that there are those options out there. You might not know what yeah. the full breadth of them is, but then to kind right. of be able to take whatever you're finding outside that you're passionate about and then apply, you know, through a multifaceted approach or a very specific approach, you can do these sorts of things. But from your standpoint, you know, you mentioned uh, you do a lot of work in genetics, you do a lot of work in collections. I mean, what really kind of brought you over to that realm of science? Was this something you fell into? Or again, did you kind of see the importance of collections and genetic work and just kind of fit in where you thought you could you could do some work? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it for me was was learning a lot about plants and then figuring out, first off, that there's so much stuff in the world yet to be discovered and explored, which was huge for me. And I think it is for a lot of people when they first learn that. But learning, you know, at least in the plant realm, that, that a lot of the questions that were that I was reading about or things people were saying that were left to, to st still figure out and questions that I generated by reading the literature and just and just witnessing natural phenomena made me realize that there were tools out there that I could use to answer some questions, right? So I think I sort of started as a naturalist. I would say that I, that's what I was. And I learned about organisms and I learned the names of them first and then figured out, you know, as I was deciding to go to grad school, that the thing I needed in my back pocket was some molecular skills. And that's why I got into phylogenetics, because I realized the, the power of using those sorts of data and analyses to answer questions that I had. Awesome. And I think that rings true, you know, reading your research, seeing some of your science communication stuff, which we'll get to later in this conversation, is that you definitely, it, it, it sounds a lot like someone who does have that natural history background, which sometimes is lacking from the biological sciences. I don't think enough people get outside and, and use that to generate questions as well. But, yeah. um, yeah. you know, how did you end up, we can kind of circle the drain, but I guess I'll just go for yeah. the kill here, is uh, you work with... <laughs> A group of plants that contains some species that are extremely important to us, uh, Solanaceae. So what what, yep. what attracted you to that group specifically? Yeah, I went into I, – I did a, a bachelor's and a master's at Rutgers University and then decided that ac the academic track was going to be the way to go. And I went to University of Connecticut to work with Greg Anderson in their ecology and evolutionary biology program. And I came in with a project that I was going to work on. Osage orange, you probably know that, yeah. that awesome tree with the crazy green fruits. And I thought, you know, I love the idea of this, this anachronistic fruit and learning more about it. And um, it only took me about a semester there to realize that uh, Nairi Zariga and her students uh, were doing an awesome job already working in that group. And I needed to find something else to work on. And actually, at that point, had done a lot of public education and K through 12 outreach stuff. And I went into Greg's office and said, I think I'm, I'm going to go get a teaching certificate and I'm going to teach high school biology. And he said, well, hold on, hold on. It was a Friday. <laughs> he said, take this paper home over the weekend and read it. And it was a paper he had published in Evolution in 1989 about 
nightshades in Australia and they're super crazy reproductive biology. And I read that over the weekend and I came in Monday and said, okay, I'm good. Like I'm back. <laughs> I want to study this group of plants. They're so cool. And it was a paper that had been out for 15 years at that time with one of those end paragraphs that said, if only we could figure <laughs> out this part. Right. And that was the part that became my dissertation. Oh, fantastic. I, I absolutely yeah. adore those uh, serendipitous moments in anyone's <laughs> career. I mean, I've heard it time and time again is, you know, this wasn't looking too fruitful or I kind of felt like this wasn't going to work out. And then they just yeah. that's when you stumble into something so beautifully eloquent and fascinating that it just yeah. steals your attention for you know potentially the rest of your life. But <laughs> again, the nightshades are yeah. such an important group of plants. I mean, tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants. And, and there's something that, you know, most people interested in gardening have probably attempted. But how many of those people realize how absolutely wondrous and, and just the marvels of evolution that they are? And, and I really love your attack on this group, not to frame it in a negative context, but, you know, again, <laughs> it's this combination of sort of natural history evolution that's really fascinating. So to go from saying, I want to study the nightshade family to what you do, I mean, where do you see yourself fitting in with this group uh, in terms of our, our, our understanding and greater knowledge of, of an entire family of plants? Yeah, I mean, so I've really focused, I've sort of you know, zoomed in on this one group of about 20 or 25 species of the genus Solanum that occur in uh, the Australian monsoon tropics all across northern Australia. And I guess my contribution to understanding this really large family is, has been looking at this group as a, a great example of super unusual reproductive biology. Uh, a good set of these species are dioecious, so they have separate male plants and separate female plants. And when you encounter them in the field, the males look like males. They, the, the flowers only have visible stamens that produce functional pollen. And the females in these populations actually look like hermaphrodites. Hmm. They make flowers that have both stamens and uh, a gynecium, so an ovary style and a stigma. Uh, but when you, um, you try to use that pollen produced in those flowers to do crosses, they won't work. And that's because the pollen is not functional. Wow. So it, there are no openings on the pollen grain. A pollen tube can't get out, so fertilization can't happen. So morphologically, if you look at them in the field, you say, oh, those are hermaphrodite plants. But functionally, they can only do female sexual function. So that's how we sort of achieve this diese, this separate sexes um, in this group. And I was pretty fascinated by that, this notion that these plants would sort of want to be uh, male and female, but the females still were sort of stuck they were constrained by having to still make anthers and still produce some sort of pollen and getting into that and studying that. Yeah. And for our, you know, the listeners that can't see you, you did do air quotes there. We're not suggesting agency and evolution <laughs> caveats, but uh, yeah, that's incredible because from my understanding, this is, this is a little bit odd considering the solanaceous plants that we're used to encountering that are uh, monoecious, right? So dioecious is also already kind of strange, but then like you said, to also look at this, morphology and say there's something constraining these it's not that again quote unquote they've decided and then all the uselessness disappears it kind of roots it in this fundamental concept of evolution being working with what you got instead of yep. this everything's trying to attain this perfect yeah, harmony right yeah so is that where this kind of molecular technique starts to feed into these questions is understanding how that might work mechanistically developmentally yeah some of it you know the initial ideas of going after it and doing the molecular phylogeny was just trying to figure out how you know where did this transition come from and how many times had this type of diece arisen in the australian group we know that it's uh, arisen 
six or seven times independently around the globe in, in the genus Solanum and other groups, but it's typically one or two species at a time. And for whatever reason in Australia, you get this, this jump into this weird form of diese, and then you have a radiation of 20 or 25 additional oh, wow. species after that point. So, so it's sort of a, it, you know, if we can measure it as a success, it's, it's probably successful in some way. But then to, to get back to your point about constraints, you've sort of got this hermaphrodite flower that most Solanums have. And so, how do you sort of become female, but also retain all these male characteristics? And, and that to me is a really fascinating idea, right? So, I mean, you have a sense for, you know, why would you do that? Like, why would you go ahead and sort of become female and function, but retain all this really, you know, this expenditure, this energy expenditure of making the organs and also producing non-functional pollen? It's a, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, as cheap as pollen can be, it still has to be manufactured, right? It yep. does take right. a draw on the plant's resources to some extent. Yep. But kind of before we look at the evolution and the potential adaptive significance of this, I think it'd be good to kind of <laughs> <laughs> outline what these species are. Do you have, a, like, where where do they sit uh, in terms of their relation to other solanums? Do they have a common ancestor elsewhere? Is this radiation across the board in Australia or specific to different sites? You know, what, are, what are these plants before we get into kind Kind of the nitty-gritty of it yeah good thanks yeah that's good um these are part so solanum's you know something like a thousand species or so probably more and uh about you know 450 of those are part of a, a subgenus where we have the eggplant so these things called spiny solanums um, if you grow ever grow eggplants in cultivation you might note that they have they sometimes have prickles on them they have the sepals fused as a calyx on the top of those fruits and sometimes those will have a couple prickles on them mm -hmm. and so there's this whole group of solanums that are a lot like that with uh, similar fruits though usually smaller and then often covered in prickles and a really particular type of star-shaped hair and so this group is is a small subset of that large cosmopolitan group of spiny solanums the group that I study, you know, one of the questions is sort of where did it come from? At some point, its ancestry was, was you know, probably coming from Asia and probably working its way into Australia and then radiating once it got there. Cool. You know, coming around the Indian Ocean, more or less. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing the fruits, not necessarily the size of a cultivated eggplant, but uh, par for the course, a, a large berry or medium-sized berry, maybe yeah. brought over in a bird dropping or two. It yeah, could have been, could have been, yeah. The largest fruits in the group that we study are a little larger than a golf ball, probably, and most are smaller. Nice. So, mm -hmm. for those that are like me and don't get to dive into this molecular realm uh, at all or ever, what is kind of the question-driven approach to this? I mean, where do you go from saying, okay, we have this group, they've obviously are related and radiated out from each other, what kind of questions do you ask from a genetics standpoint to start tackling some of these ideas? Yeah, I mean, for us, a lot of what we've been doing is trying to mine different gene regions that are informative enough to give us phylogenies that are resolved so we can retrace evolutionary histories. And that's been sort of our main, my main focus for almost 20 years now. Um, and obviously, I'm not the only one doing this. There's lots of people, including Sandy Knapp and colleagues and Lynn Bowes, that have been working in the same genus trying to figure out similar kinds of ideas. Um, but for me, that's mostly where I've been going. We've, in the past couple of years, started gotten more involved in population genetics questions. I had previous postdocs, Jason Cantley and Ingrid Jordan Thayden and now Angela McDonald are all people that have sort of worked through my lab. And we've been doing both phylogenetics 
and the population genetics. And that's where we can start to ask questions that are a little more proximal about mm. uh, sort of demographics and who's inbred and who's not and how that might be connected to what breeding systems these these plants exhibit. Fascinating. So it does have to kind of start with this exploratory evolutionary uh, question of like, okay, what is related and how? And then you can, ah. again, dive deeper into that. But that's what's so fascinating about this kind of science is how much of it really is still at this early initial stage. You know, we tend to think yep. that we figured it all out here in 2018. Yep. We're, we're <laughs> done. Walk, wrap yep. up, go home, everyone. But uh, it just kind of sounds like so much has, has yet to be understood. But I guess in these sorts of questions, are you at the point where things are starting to paint a more nuanced picture of this group? I mean, obviously, there's always more. But, uh, you know, what, what are you finding, at least, uh, with sort of the relationships? You know, I think what's interesting is that we're still throwing all sorts of different types of, um, of analyses at this group. And, and I think this is the year where we finally figure it out and have a really clean phylogeny, partly because Angela is so freaking smart. And now she's working in the lab with me, right? And, and, the, and the past work that other people have done is all culminating into this moment. But, mm -hmm. you know, I think what we're figuring out is more or less where um, what the breeding system transitions have been. We, we're working on a paper right now looking at different types of fruit and seed dispersal and, and and where those things have, have derived from. But one of the more fascinating things is that it truly is the case that not everything's figured out. What the, by building these phylogenies and just trying to figure out relationships and doing lots of field work, I've done seven trips in 15 years to, the, to Northern Australia. Nice. Um, we just keep like discovering more and more new diversity, right? So we've been wow. able to describe several species from the group just because we've been out there and because we're doing the phylogenetic work. And that's been one of the more fascinating things and one of the best things for my students to get involved in is sort of the discovery and naming of, of a number of new species. So, And every time we, we find something new and learn about it, it just gives us more natural history data to plug into those phylogenies as well. So I really do like to think of it as sort of an, a, a holistic approach to learning about this one particular group of fascinating organisms. Yeah, extremely refreshing to hear that. Again, the natural history elements, the discovery elements, all feeding into this bigger understanding of relationships and evolution and, and a lot of bigger theory questions that can be asked. But going back to what you had said earlier about the evolution of these strange uh, dioecious flower morphologies, you know, do you think at the core of it, a lot of this uh, radiation and understanding of this, these species is revolving around this unique form of reproductive uh, mimicry in a sense? Uh, I don't know if you could call it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the diversification, the radiation that seems to have happened after this odd reproductive form arises in this group uh, is connected to something having to do with its natural history and interactions with, with other organisms. Um, for starters, uh, many of these species occur in small populations, so small numbers of individuals in pretty remote areas and often in very specific types of habitat. So we have sets of species that only live on sandstone outcrops, for example, right? So almost these little sky islands in the in the Australian monsoon tropics. And that isolation and being um, already sort of being prone to small population size, I think has meant that uh, there's a, a proclivity for inbreeding in those sites. Mm. And you can go go back as far as Darwin for ideas about why dioecy and separate sexes and plants would have evolved. And you know, he proposed way back when that it probably was a way of avoiding inbreeding. And I think that's probably the case for our species as well. Huh. And that is fascinating to think that, you know, again, you, you mentioned there is some level of cost to this, but then it's yeah. a matter of trade-offs. You know, do you incur a cost by producing some non-functional pollen 
but then limiting the amount that you're breeding with your direct sibling versus yep. a cost of, again, just being completely inbred and potentially having detrimental alleles just wipe out a population. Yeah, right. So, you know, the, the, the only way you can make sure that you, uh, well, one way you can make sure that you never sell is to by making it impossible physically, right? So these are obligate outcrossers. Any individual has to outcross with another individual once you've gone separate sexes. Mm. But, but the fascinating thing really, and I don't know, you know, the fascinating thing is, is then if you're going to do that, why are you retaining the, the organs and also this non-functional pollen? And that to me has always been a really fascinating question as well. Sure. So with the command of the genetic understanding that you have at this point in the game, do you see any indication as to, you know, where on the chromosome this is working from? Do you have any sort of genetic mechanism to kind of understand why uh, complete abandonment versus retaining some uh, anachronistic features. Mm. What what's going on there, or is it too early to tell? Uh, we are, you know, we're delving into some of that because there are a number of other things that we want to look at too, in terms of sort of like genes being turned on and off. But it seems to be that the key to retention of the anthers and the pollen has everything to do with pollinators. Um, so the entire genus Solanum is largely devoid of nectar. So the uh, pollinators are all pollen foragers. So in Solanum, we have this really specific type of pollination called buzz pollination or vibratile pollination. And um, essentially, all the anthers are only open at the very tip. And that's where the pore is. And so bees like bumblebees that are capable of doing this type of pollination will a light on the tip, they'll grasp the tips of those anthers and they'll vibrate at a particular frequency. And once that, that occurs, then the pollen falls out of the anther onto the body of that, of that bee. So with this really tight association to a particular type of pollinator, you basically can't afford to get rid of both the attraction, which is, are the anthers themselves and the, and the reward as well. So it's sort of this tight, like, you know, we, uh, again, air quotes, we want to obligately outcross and be males and females, but even if I go female, I still can't get rid of the stuff that the pollinators are coming and visiting wow, for. Wow, wow. That's insane, awesome. right? Yeah. But again, <laughs> you know, plants are organisms, right? They're interacting with their environment. This isn't a vacuum. And the kinds of pressures, the selective pressures on an organism really can't be fully appreciated until you look at the broader context of which they're yes. existing. And this right. really seems to underscore this idea that, yeah, yeah, it's it's fine and dandy to have reproductive structures that change based on mutations. But how does that work in the context of the organism that allows you to have sex in the first place? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, learning all this early on made me really want to get involved and jump in on learning about this group. And even today, I keep saying to myself, oh, maybe it's time to think about something else, or maybe I won't spend as much time doing field work in Australia, but I, I just can't quit this group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like you've somehow, again, serendipitously or not, stumbled into an incredibly fascinating system to study. Yeah. And, right. and a really neat set of plants at that. I mean, aesthetically pleasing, ecologically pleasing. Uh, That's right. But, you know, and you're also, like you said, you're describing new species. So are these things that you can look at and say, okay, these look different? Or is it really only coming out of this phylogenetic work that you're doing? Are these cryptic hidden species that only really come to light when you blast their DNA and look at it? Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't say they're 
that they're so much cryptic is that it's it's been enlightening to look at the phylogenies. The, this one of the species, the species that we're writing up right now, you know, this week is one that the phylogeny really led us to, and then the field work allowed us to confirm it. And frankly, the collections, you know, this is mm. maybe the fourth time that we've seen something in the field and said, oh, this is really weird and unusual, and then gone back to the herbarium in the Northern Territory and found old specimens with notes on them from some of the great collectors of Salinum in Australia <laughs> that say, I have no idea what this is. Somebody really needs to work this out. Maybe someday someone will find better collections and we'll be able to do this. So Bingo. quite often for us, when, when we you know make these sort of, again, air quotes, these sort of new discoveries, we realize that somewhere in the last 50, 60 years, some really awesome field botanist has already collected stuff and and, and raise the question about whether it deserved to be recognized as something new. I'm really glad you made that point because, again, part of your work obviously revolves around these collections. And as we've heard time and time again, often these collections go understudied in recent years. They are often destroyed or lost to time. Yep. And when people think about discovering a new species, it's easy to kind of get stuck in that Victorian naturalist era where, like, bingo, I have traveled to the ends of the earth and almost died, and here we are, this new species. But... <laughs> So often it really does happen that, you know, you give credit where credit is due, but you go back and you find that someone has seen this before. And a lot of these new things are either confirmed by or done through collections, museum, yeah, botanical, right. uh, yeah. university collections. I mean, as a collections manager and someone who cares about public science communication, how do you iterate the importance of this sort of work through collections to the public? Yeah. I mean, so the, you know, the starting point really is maybe not so much public, but it's what you're mentioning, which is acknowledging the importance of collections for your own discoveries, right? So we're always really careful when we do the spe new species descriptions to, to note what has been seen and described before. So, you know, we'll have maybe a, probably even a photo of the label with all the notes hmm. from that previous collector included as part of this new paper. Um, so acknowledging that and, and, and acknowledging that contribution is really important. Um, a couple of years ago, a guy named David Simon, who's kind of the leading solenologist in the history of Australia, his notes that I found in a herbarium folder um, among some specimens were so important to us being able to describe a new species. And he had been dead for 10 years at that point that I made him a co-author on the paper wow. because I just felt it was such an important contribution that deserved to be acknowledged. In, ter in terms of the public you know, one of the things that we spend a lot of time in the lab thinking about is how to share and promote the science and the discoveries that come out of the lab. <laughs> and um, in doing that, uh, one of the things that we often try to highlight is is the important role of collection. So we've had, uh, you know, the last three or four papers that have come out of the lab have included some element of the story that goes back to the value of having stuff in herbaria. Wow. that That's actually really impressive. And that's I don't think it's enough attention because a lot of times these papers go unread by a lot of the general public. I'm not even going to make a broad brushstroke there, but oftentimes this isn't seen. But again, it's rare that you ever see that kind of narrative-driven scientific writing. Uh, you know, do you feel like sometimes you meet resistance from reviewers by trying to include a bit of a back, bit more of a backstory? I know in my own dealings and some publications that I've gotten out, oftentimes you're penalized for doing a little bit more colloquialisms, as they like to kind of kindly backhand you with. <laughs> Um, yes. You know, do you think that there is this has been met with a lot of skepticism, but at the same time, do you think that moving forward, things are starting to change in that regard? I think it depends on the journal and depends on the editors and, and depends on the reviewers still. Right. I've had lots mm -hmm. of stuff kicked back over the course of my career for, you know, being too casual, perhaps with language or or, or spinning too much of a 
of a narrative that, that is <laughs> maybe can, you know, thought of as maybe not quite as rigorous as, as it could be. But um, I don't know. I feel like telling the stories is, is really important. So even if it doesn't make it through peer review, I'm still typically going to find some way to, 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 to build an angle and tell a story that I think is going to appeal to non-scientists, right? And we've had a lot of luck doing that with our recent papers because, like you were just saying, like, I mean, new species papers are really not going to be read or cited by a lot of people. But we figured out ways to, to really get them out into the spotlight a little bit. And, you know, I think the resistance that comes from that is not so much even what gets written in the, in the scientific journal article, but a, a resistance to the very notion of promoting one's science and putting it out there. Um, beyond just sort of writing it up and and, and putting out the, the peer-reviewed stuff. Um, I think we still, you know, that's like pretty well established that there are lots of scientists who don't think that it's necessarily the business of other scientists to do that work, but I think it's pretty important. Yeah, and that's, I think, a perfect segue for another topic we, we wanted to discuss here was just science communication in general. I mean, you've got an incredible YouTube series, Plants Are Cool Too, which we can talk about, but you have a great Twitter presence. Your grad students and postdocs have great Twitter presence. You know, you guys are sharing these things and interacting with people at, on a brighter spectrum than even just what you would do at, say, a conference, which is usually the largest outlet that most scientists are, are allowed or allow themselves to reach out on. And, and this idea of kind of compelling people to get engaged, even if it's not their field or even if it's not their career type, is so vital because we're already seeing the backlashes of a public that generally doesn't value science or, or rational thinking above, you know, however you want to frame it <laughs> otherwise. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I think, I guess my first question on that is just what do you think the resistance is to the, the importance of communicating science and, and how, I guess, did you kind of, you've hinted at it, you've done a lot of external education. How did you kind of fall into this realm of, of valuing it enough to have both sides of your science be seen? Yeah. So let me just say first off that the work you're doing with In Defense of Plants is super freaking awesome. Oh, so kudos to you. It's so, so great. You know, a lot of people talking about it and they should because you're doing a great job at, at doing what you were just describing. That means a lot. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome stuff. And, you know, for me, I think some of it and I'll, I'll cut right to sort of why I think I've engaged in it so much is that I, you know, as a first gen college student, as a person who didn't really see science as an option for me growing up, I didn't, you know, I thought other kinds of people became scientists. <laughs> um, I've never really taken the idea that I am now a working scientist for granted. I'm fascinated by everything all the time still. And I don't know if it's just because I, it never felt like a linear path for me. Like, of course, I'm going to do science and this is how science is done. And everything that we know, we know because Science figured it out. I'm more like everything I turn around and see, I can't believe it's real still. So, <laughs> um, and I've sort of carried that notion of really being truly awestruck by most things going on or in, on the planet that I just feel like compelled to tell people about it. So whether it's my own science or the stuff we do in my lab or it's things other people are doing, I just, you know, can't imagine not wanting to tell non-scientists about the amazing stuff that's being discovered every day. And, you know, maybe that's just sort of part of my DNA, but I think it's it's pretty important. And I know that there's probably lots of people who, uh, like me, didn't think of science as being something they could do or engage in or were intimidated by. And it takes a few of us to just get out there and share these stories for those folks to come aboard. Um, and it's pretty darn important right now at a, at a, in a time where lots of people are skeptical about science or don't trust it or maybe don't want to sort of don't feel comfortable funding it that we tell these stories, you know, that people need to know. Yeah, I mean, I 
can't agree with you more on that regard, but I do like what you're preaching to each other. Yeah, I know. But (laughs) I think from the standpoint of what you said about being a first generation scientist and and still having the sense of wonder, again, I can't reiterate enough how much that really does come through in in everything you're doing, both research based with communication based is, is this passion, right? And I think a lot of times, whether people realize it or not, I think the success of podcasts and science communication right now in general is just wanting to hear someone passionate talk about a subject that they're passionate about, right? It kind of <laughs> doesn't really matter sometimes. Like, I'll listen to the physicists talk about things I will never understand, but it's amazing to hear them get excited about it. Yep. And, and, and that really, I think, is what kind of makes or breaks successful science communication. So I think uh, in terms of where we're at culturally where we're at academically at this point in the game you know you you could probably look at yourself as kind of a forerunner of this new wave of science communication that's just straight out of the mouth of someone who's actively doing it and and promoting it and and doing it well right uh well and i well yeah sure i I guess i you know for 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 my own generation maybe i've been a uh an early adopter, if you will. But what really is so heartening for me is, is that it's almost become par for the course that you're going to have so many people that are working scientists that are in the sort of, I don't know whether to call it the current generation or the upcoming generation of scientists. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really heartening to see how many people are engaging in it, right? To, to whatever level they're comfortable with, right? So, yeah. you know, you're clearly like, go, you're all in in lots of different ways, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, and, <laughs> and this plant love stories thing that's come aboard with, with Becky Barak and, and her crew, right, is also like, but, but every little bit does help. And I think it's important to sort of say that, that um, not everybody wants to go all in and make a podcast or a YouTube series or a blog, but every little bit of uh, outreach and uh, and SciComm does make a really, really big oh, difference. Totally. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times, especially, you know, you as an established academic scientist here, you have limited time on your hands. Not everyone has the capacity or wants to get up in front of a, a group of people or be on camera, right? And and a lot of times you see, you know, a lot of PSYCOM people get, um, you know, shoved away from the public eye because maybe they were too generalized or that they're too bombastic or something yep. like that. But no one should have a monopoly on science communication. We should strive for accuracy. But the more we have out there, even if it's just you're tweeting out a, a generic finding of one of your papers, that's something. Yep. It is. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, every little bit does matter. Right. But, you know, you sort of mentioned that sort of like that accuracy issue is, is I think where some of the resistance comes from. Right. I think you could you could talk to lots of established scientists who feel that at some point they've been burned right, by a, <laughs> by a journalist or someone else who has not represented their science or even their words rigorously or accurately right and i think the pushback to that has been people saying well then i'm not going to engage that way right Um, but one of the things that i've been really keen on you know telling people to do is just sort of take it on yourself start becoming your own pr person right put stuff out there if you're if you are blogging or making videos or doing whatever you're doing then you you are the one representing your work Right. And uh, you can make sure it's accurate and rigorous. And so who better to do it than you as the scientist? So, yeah. You know, um, and, and of course, as we all know, we now have the capacity to reach more people easier than, you know, any time in human history. So why not put stuff out there, represent your stuff, represent it accurately and then let people know. Exactly. And uh, aside from Twitter, promoting the work that you're doing. And again, your grad students and postdocs have been excellent with this. Uh, you know, Angela's a previous podcast guest herself, excellent mm-hmm. science communicator, very passionate. 
but you have your own YouTube series that I just adore. Uh, and I think anyone that's heard this can tell you've got the personality for it. So tell us sure. a little bit about what you did with Plants Are Cool too. What was kind of the, the start of this? I know it's a, a project you've gotten some funding for. Um, yeah. What is it and where did it all begin? Yeah, Plants Are Cool too is is about a decade old. You know, it's I was spending a lot of time in my summers running these field biology camps for kids just because where I was living at the time, parents wanted something for their kids like that in the summer. And I was really struck by how much those kids knew about animals, you know. So, <laughs> you know, we'd go into the forest and they'd point to all sorts of stuff and know the names and then they wouldn't know the plants. And I asked them, you know, why do you know all this stuff? And many of them at the time said, well, I've seen it on Discovery. I've seen it on Animal Planet. I've seen it on Wild Crafts or whatever. And uh, I realized that they didn't really have the same access to dynamic media content that for plants that they had with animals. So I started just talking to people and saying, can, you know, can I just start generating that kind of stuff and met a couple of um, really outstanding video producers, videographers, Paul Frederick and Tim Kramer, who I've been working with now for almost 10 years. And we, I just sort of brainstormed with them and said, here's what I want to do. I want to feature cool plants, cool plant stories and the dynamic scientists who study them. And and, uh, you know, just show people that there's all this cool stuff out there to learn about plants. And there's lots of people that are scientists who are studying it. And that's how it got started. Initially, the Botanical Society of America helped fund uh, uh, at least the first few episodes. And then over time, I've also been able to tap into uh, the institutions where the guest scientists are from. Mm. And then today, I, a lot of the funding comes from Bucknell, where, where I currently work. And that's not that's the part that I haven't loved is the fundraising. So I'm acting as sort of like co-producer, host, writer, uh, scientific consultant, right? All these things <laughs> at once. And most of those are really fun. But the having to figure out how to pay for it stuff is, is not. Um, and you've seen them. And, and if anybody else has seen them, you know that, that they look really nice. And it's because I hire actual professionals to do the work. And, you know, that's it's the choice that we've made is that we want to make them sort of like television quality. Right. But that that costs money. Yeah, yeah. But again, going back to what you had hinted at earlier is if you're not finding that these that what's out there publicly available for mass media consumption isn't suitable, make your own. And that's what's beautiful right. about this is that you're not looking for a TV executive producer or an executive producer at Netflix to go, yeah, we'll take a shot on one botany documentary and that'll be the <laughs> right. only botany documentary for the next decade. You know, yeah. this is something you just kind of did. And as much as fundraising sucks... Uh, it's vital that you're doing it, but I think the power of the internet and what people are really starting to rally behind on social media, whether that be Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram is that, you know, production quality or not, there's a avenue to approach that, that is publicly available. And again, puts the creative outlet into the hands of the person and then let the public be the gauge, you know, let yeah, the yeah. community gauge, you know, how well you communicated that because really they're the ultimate judges of, of effective science communication, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, that's what we've done. And that's, you know, and to some degree, like you sort of the always having it be super high quality stuff doesn't always matter, right? Because having content out there is really important and having volume out there is important. And if the, the stories are compelling and we're and you're doing it in a dynamic way, then that often will matter more than anything. Yeah. But again, I mean, you've got the personality to be a host. It's, it's really huh. nice to sit back and just sit and listen to stuff that, you know, if I was just reading it would probably come off a little bit dry. Uh, you know, you're, you're engaging with people and you get 
so much more out of your interactions when you see someone interacting with you face to face. You get to see that they are a human too on top of this. But in terms of uh, episodes that you have out for people that are listening to this and haven't seen it, you know, what are some of your favorite experiences in making this uh, episode wise? Yeah, we've had, I mean, there, there's, yeah, we just, what did we just hit? 10 episodes and, um, golly, they're all good, right? <laughs> yeah. First off, I can't believe I just said golly on a podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's better Gee whiz, that's swell. Gee whiz, how neat this show is. Uh, the, uh, I've loved so many of them. Some of the ones that have gotten really great responses of, you know, the, um, we did one with Dave Tank and colleagues and in Idaho in the Clarkia fossil beds. Mm. And that site was just ridiculous because there are 15 million year old leaf fossils uh, being pulled out of the ground. And uh, they're not just impressions. They're um, actual leaf tissue. So it's 15 million year old leaf tissue wow. of the flora that stood there at the time, which is just crazy. So people have responded to that pretty well. And sort of like an equal measure of botany types and geology types who've been into that one. Did a couple in Chihuahua Desert, one with Mike Moore doing at Oberlin, who does gypsum endemism. And that gave us a, a way of sort of teaching about types of speciation. Yeah, that was uh, a personal one, favorite of mine. Yeah, I like that one a lot. There's a lot of ecology and also sort of species evolution stuff there. And on that same trip, we filmed with Krista Skogan from the Chicago Botanic Garden and did um, the role of hawk moth pollinators and long distance movement of genes in uh in uh enothera these evening primroses that was a ton of fun too a lot of people like that one there's just a ton of, of good ones the, the most recent one was um when we filmed right here in pennsylvania and that to me is probably at this point my number one favorite because it's <laughs> the only one that led to uh you know a new discovery and a new uh scientific journal article uh, plus the video. And then we got lots of cool media attention for that video and, and the findings. So that was really fun because we found uh, the first record of an endangered plant species in Pennsylvania that no one knew was even in the state. So I don't yeah. know if you check one out, but that oh, was Oh yeah. Fun. I mean, that was, yeah. that was, I think where I saw the most, I had seen videos before, but again, when you talk about all of that hitting at once, that, that media blitz was fantastic for that discovery. And, and, and what a great discovery it was to have had happen, you know, but I think, yeah. you know, when people are sitting there racking their brains about how to get the message out there and, and effective ways of why don't more eyes see my work, yep. you know, you can't always expect to go repelling or to go and find something <laughs> rare or da- right. endangered or something like that. But yeah. thinking about this package, how you kind of deliver it to the different outlets that need to see your work, that I think just exemplifies the power of, of the Internet mm-hmm. and, and this kind of popular media uh, science popularization that's going on. Yeah. I mean, it was just, yeah, I'll just sort of, should we just tell that story a bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I don't want to steal your thunder, but if you feel comfortable, have at it. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, we, we decided to film on that place called the Shikalemi bluffs, really steep, um, vertical cliffs that are along the Susquehanna river locally and working primarily with Scott Schutte, who's a, a a natural heritage botanist here in, in PA. And um, we did rappel down on ropes, mostly to look for this um, rare corridolus that only occurs at that site, one place in all of Pennsylvania. So we went down there sort of to show people how heritage botanists do surveys for rare plants. And sometime during the day, I was just tweeting photos of other things we were seeing. And I tweeted a photo of a heuchera, the um, things called coral bells or um, alum roots. And there's this thing, heuchera americana, that's really common around. 
around here. It's one of only two known species in the state. And I posted that on Twitter and said, hey, this is a really cool picture of Fucura Americana with a bumblebee on it. Um, and the response I got was from this guy, Ryan Folk, who's at University of Florida, who is one of the global experts in that genus. Oh. And he said, um, that's not Americana. That's something called Euchra alba. Quite rare was his quote. <laughs> Two exclamation points even. So I knew it was a big deal. So I quickly Googled that species and found out that it at the time was only known from small populations in Virginia and West Virginia. Love it. Um, so I was like, no way, what? You know, and then it turned out it was it was true. So we had this sort of multi-layered, like we found this cool species while filming. Plants are cool too. And the only reason we knew it was there was because somebody just, you know, kind of discovered it through Twitter and it sort of became this multi-layer, multimedia story. And I knew pretty immediately that it was gonna carry it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Really right. Um and then we wrote a paper and published it in Phytokeys about this, you know, this expanded understanding of that species. We ended up finding it using herbarium records. We ended up finding it in seven or eight other localities in the state. Um, and that herbarium stuff became part of the story, too. And it, it really just ended up being a really cool story. You know, it's got yeah. so much going for it. You know? Yeah. And again, that sort of serendipitous nature. And I think a lot of times people want to get on their high horse and bemoan internet culture and, and, you know, how bad it can be at times. But I also think being a tool, it has immense potential. And this exemplifies that potential to a degree that I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate in the natural sciences is the power to have a collective sort of uh, democratic process on, hey, that might be something unique. Yep. Here's a bunch of people, or maybe an herbarium has a bunch of clay. We have stuff from this area. Here you go, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. it, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, this one really came together. It's really nice. I'm happy to. I'm happy to tell this story anywhere anybody will have me because <laughs> it's got it's got so many touch points that that make really important uh, points about modern day science, right? But what I love about it is it's that this intersection of like classical approaches to botany, you know, mm. historical collections and looking at geology maps and doing all that kind of stuff while at the same time just shows how easy it is to plug into a scientific community that that is largely online, right? And we can sure. we can make discoveries together as a community through that through these uh, through these platforms. Yeah. Now, I know this is something any communicator faces, but the whole issue, as you said earlier, is preaching to the choir. You know, a lot of mm. times we put a bunch of hooks out, but we're only going to catch the people that want to bite those hooks. Yeah. I think stories like this also have the power to kind of reach out to people that may not necessarily be interested. My favorite emails to get are people that say, you know, I really don't care about plants, but I love your podcast. <laughs> that's that's to me. I'm like, that did it right there. You know, that's yeah. my that's the audience I want to get. Do you yeah. think that with this discovery and the, the plants are cool too, do you feel like uh, these multimedia approaches do cast a bit of a wider net because it is more easily digestible and findable than, say, you know, between the pages of a very esoteric botany text? Yeah, I think so, for sure, right? For sure. I think because as humans, we respond to, to sort of human stories, right? It, so, mm. so these become stories that are beyond just sort of like this plant does this thing and, and the scientist says that's interesting or novel, but it becomes these sort of, you know, the more there's sort of these multiple layers of, of experience around these stories, the more potential hooks you have to get, get people uh, engaged in the story, right? So, you know, for this one, there's the, there's the Twitter thing and the scientists <laughs> geeking out on Twitter together, right? There's the, there's the hanging off a cliff and doing the whole thing we're doing as part of the video. There's, there's all these cool elements of it that, that go into it. And I think the, the more you can sort of throw that broad net, the more likely you are to obviously catch more fish. So I think, yes, I think the answer is yes to that. And so one of the things I'm most pleased about is that these videos get lots of use in K through 12 classrooms. Nice. 
and I'm learning that more and more, right? So, you know, those don't count. Those, that's one click when a, when a video shows in a classroom. But <laughs> the more I go out and give talks in other parts of the country and, and I have people approach me pretty frequently now after talks and say, hey, you know, my kids saw this in, in their classroom or a teacher saying I use this all the time. I'm beginning to see that, that the reach that these things can have mm. in a way that like sort of the normal metrics that I can see on YouTube don't necessarily show me. So. Those are kids in a classroom. Who knows how they might be inspired by these cool stories? Totally. And this isn't something that's hidden behind a paywall or a $400 textbook. This is something that anyone with access to a computer and the internet can access. You know, this yep. isn't something that's denied an entire subset of humanity just because they don't have the wherewithal to afford it. That's right. Yeah. So moving forward, both as a scientist and a communicator, what excites you? What's on the horizon? What are you looking to do in the next, uh, you know, couple of years? <laughs> yeah, I'm at a weird juncture because I, I got promoted to full professor last year. And now Congrats. I really honestly have control over my own, <laughs> my own agenda, right? So Ooh. I really do have to, you're sort of forcing me into what I've been trying to avoid, which is actually figure oh, no. out what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, I feel like, gosh, there's so much possibilities here with, with the science communications. I've been thinking a lot about a new multi-platform project that I've sort of in my own head been calling Life Undiscovered. And uh, I think what I have learned through some of the success we've had in outreach around our own new species papers and through this series as well, is that one of the things people respond to, non-scientists respond to uh, quite frequently, is, is this idea of, of there being undiscovered biodiversity out there to still mm. find and name and protect. And even though we know as scientists that we're discovering new things constantly every day, thousands of things a year. Um, this idea that there's all this stuff out there is really compelling for people. And so I was thinking about this project where, where it's really a series about new species discovery and humankind's quest to find and name everything on Earth and <laughs> go out with scientists as they hunt for new things and, and, and sort of make that a, a focus of a new video series, perhaps. And so I've been thinking about that quite a bit. That's really exciting. Yeah, I think it could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, potentially. It could be a lot of, well, uh, we didn't find anything today, but that's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the cutting room floor. Right. <laughs> what about uh, Solanaceae? Are you sticking with those? Do you think you'll tackle any other families? I mean, you said there's still so much more you could ask, and you're, you're, you love them, but what, what about that end of it? I do love them. You know, my, my quest right now, and Angela and I have been talking about that a lot, this a lot lately, is to is to try to sort of, close some of the, the the many open projects we have in Australian Solanum. I think I'll still work on this group, but one of the, the things that I've been thinking about lately is, you know, and I'm discovering it. Pennsylvania is kind of a new part of the world for me, a new state for me. I've been here now seven years, but it's still pretty new. And I'm, you know, I feel like one of the contributions I can make as a, as a botanist and as somebody who's just really intrigued by plants and ecology and natural history is to, is to try to look around here and try to do some more local projects. And one of the things that I'm really excited about is, is as I mentioned, I've been working closely with Scott Schutte with the Natural Heritage Program. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of the, how um, infrequent collaborations like ours seem to be you know there's this sort of sort of academic realm of science and then there's this sort of agency ngo side of things and 
both of these groups are learning so much, but often not putting these things together in an applied way that actually leads to uh, conservation of, of rare and cool species and habitats. So I kind of know that in the next decade or so, Scott and I and other folks that do similar kind of work are going to be collaborating a lot more on those kinds of things. Oh, it's fantastic to hear. It's it's really encouraging to kind of have those, again, the global perspective, but then have that opportunity to do something for the local flora as well. I mean, yep. it's, it's got to feel good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm psyched about it. And, you know, we're, Bucknell is an undergraduate institution primarily, um, so I'm always trying to come up with cool projects for students to do. And I know that what made me fall in love with plants was being outside, seeing real plants in real places. And so developing a lot of local projects has always been a, a bit of my strategy for having things for undergrads to do. But um, I think we, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to become even more effective at that in the next few years. Fantastic to hear. Uh, very admirable. Uh, and, and it's so good to see, you know, putting action to words. I mean, this is exactly... <laughs> what we desperately need and anyone that has the energy and then the enthusiasm to do it like you, I'm so happy you're doing it, man. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. I'm glad we're part of a a big sort of team of people talking about plants. I love it. (laughs) Heck yes. So (laughs) in that regard, if anyone listening wants to find out more about your work, both scientific and science communication, Uh how do you recommend they reach out to you and find out more? You know what? I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. So mm-hmm. uh, Martine Botney is my Twitter handle. Come follow me over there. Connect with me over there. That's probably just the best way to do it. And then I, I really would love for people, if they're not already checking it out, to go check out the Plants Are Cool to YouTube series. Uh, subscribe, if you will. And uh, you'll see that in the next year or two, we should have another couple of uh, cool episodes coming out. Um, there are some plans to do some work in Hawaii and a couple of other places. Excellent. Well, in that way, I will be putting up all of links to that so people can easily just go and get them from this episode. Cool. Great. Well, Dr. Martin, thank you so much for talking to us. This has been fascinating. I think your enthusiasm is contagious, and let's hope that it plants the seed, pun intended, in a, <laughs> in a whole new set of plant scientists. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, man. Thanks. And congrats on the new chapter. It's exciting to know uh, there's a lot of cool stuff on the horizon. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you have yourself a great day. Thanks. You too. Yep. Cheers. See you. All right. Great stuff. I thank Dr. Martin from taking time out of his schedule to talk with us, and I really sincerely hope you go check out not only his research, but his great series, Plants Are Cool Too. Follow him on Twitter for all of the great interactions. He's just an excellent science communicator and someone who's really working to cure plant blindness. That about does it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Remember, go check out that Patreon. Thanks to the Patreon supporters we have currently, In Defense of Plants just got itself a new and improved recording device. Also, we too have a YouTube series. In fact, we've got some really exciting stuff up on the horizon with our Kickstarter campaign for the Cascades. That documentary is coming together so wonderfully. I can't wait for you all to see what Grant has put together in the editing process. And a special shout out to Sarah Johnson, who got us an incredible subset of B-roll footage. We, we really could not have made this documentary what it is without her help. So stay tuned for that. The best way to do that is head on over to youtube.com slash plants and hit that subscribe button. Also, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search plants on both of those. Regular updates on that, especially if you like botanical adventures and looking at houseplants and, and botanical garden tours and all that jazz. So make sure you're checking those out and hit subscribe. That's about it. So I'm going to sign off here instead of rambling on forever. So thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it. 
Until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.